Welcome to the Geek Teak Podcast, where it's time to be proud of ourselves. I'm Void. I'm here with my co-host, Beach. Oh, I'm always proud of myself. That's good. That's a good attitude to have. Today, we are talking about the opposite of last week. So you want to talk about gaming shames, and I was like, hey, what about our gaming prides? Like, yep. what makes us proud that we've done in gaming? Um, and that, that's kind of what I want to talk about. Like, just the opposite, <laughs> the opposite attitude of last week. So what are your biggest gaming prides it's kind of interesting because i see what you've written here uh, i want to talk yeah. through it obviously we always see each other's notes but like yours are very different than mine like we kind of hang our hats on different things when it comes to gaming apparently yeah and what really surprises me is that neither of us really except for like one on mine uh is like based around achievements in games like the arbitrary achievements you know where like the xbox achievements playstation trophies like even world of warcraft achievements when that put was put in it's like none of ours are really uh, with those and so like for me it's always been about accomplishing something and that's kind of the way yours are but like one of my biggest ones was when i actually started a heroic rating in wow like we were pushing heroic content uh with some of the the league guilds on the server and so it made me really really proud to be pushing that and being ahead and being capable of doing that after having earned the nickname professor stands in all the fire and <laughs> So that is very a proud moment for me. And then like when Burning Crusade came out, I was one of the first level 70s to uh, get there and to have flying when that expansion launched because me and a group of my friends uh, sat down and this was in 2006. So I just graduated college and I was in that kind of weird amorphous. Uh, what am I doing with my life phase? And what I did was work to level 70 very quickly and gained flying uh, before most people were through that content on the server so i was again pushing that kind of content and i moved back from that but i'm proud of having done that because it was a lot of fun to be able to see that first you know because i wasn't yeah, in the beta totally. and it was live it was live stuff that i saw that's interesting well and so another one of yours was ultima online too right so you have a couple mmo <laughs> things in here actually almost all of yours are mmo this almost is interesting all of them are it's because most of my gaming history has actually been mmos it's like when i look back at so much of the console stuff that i've played it was between mmos or kind of a side stuff or before and like uh ultima online i was so proud when this one dude uh told would not trade with me at the uh, britain bank because quote i know you and uh, he knew my name and wouldn't do it i was being totally legit but because i scammed so many people and got away with it he had heard about me and just some rando on the server knew about me and would not trade with me and i was so proud and like there were so many things like that I, we luke and i my, my best friend at the time was we ran a casino off of one of our vendors in the game and so we made a name for ourselves on giving away just good enough prizes in one of the boxes to keep people coming back and i was so proud that we made millions upon millions and millions and millions of gold doing this from people and being totally legit about it but uh but but knowing how to basically run the house and so i was so proud of that because i was finally able to buy like a full-size tower in ultima online uh because they're absurdly expensive through running a casino uh on there and uh when i was in college 
and then I would take stuff like that, and then the 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 money and the property that I bought these houses, and would sell them for real life money on eBay or on trading boards, where like I made hundreds to thousands of dollars. I had to have made over a couple thousand dollars overall uh, to. Oh, just on like selling real estate in Ultima Online that I worked toward. Like I'm super proud of being enterprising enough to come up with that system and uh, and actually us work it to where we were known on the server. And it was like I was known to scam people, but I also ran a casino type gambling game that was just legit enough that people got a really good prize enough that other people would be like, yeah, hey, awesome. I'm getting this. I'm going to do this too. So it was... So it was you're, fun. You're telling me that you basically invented loot boxes. Uh yeah. Okay. But, okay, just making no, sure that was... I'm understanding. You you basically made loot boxes before loot boxes were a thing and then you found a way to convert in-game currency to real life cash. Like that is that's actually extremely impressive. Pretty much, yeah. We would take all of these items. The way that we did it was we you could sell bags on your vendors. And you could set it where no one could see it. Like people could look inside the bags, but they you could put a locked box in there. And uh, P- and you could put a key, sell a key with it. And so they could basically pick any of these bags that were um that were priced at like 30,000 gold, 100,000 gold, whatever it was that we had it at, I can't remember. And then with a prize, we would have a little book in there with the list of prizes and tell them, hey, you get a chance at this, and uh, here's some of the like top like five prizes on there. And we would have like 40 bags and stuff, and they could, uh, couldn't could open up the locked chest to see which one was inside. So they would buy the overall bag. Uh, they would stand there. You Actually, the key was locked down on the 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 house where they could use the key uh, that we had available to them and then open it up and see if they got their prize. And uh, then we would take that money, buy real estate with it or whatever, and uh, end up selling it on eBay or trading boards. Yeah. Where we just, uh, found a way to really convert that currency that worked very effectively like we got we had um for anybody who played ultima online back in the day when they moved the skill set above 100 it was a skill-based game instead of level based so you could have one to 100 in uh seven skills um you had 700 points that you could distribute in terms of skill points they raised the cap to 120 where you could have like five 120s uh and we were the five 120s uh in some of the most expensive ones like majory that you could get because we were able to farm them and buy the the super expensive stuff because of how successful we were at basically running this in-game casino and uh, like i'm really proud of that because uh luke ended up losing his and losing lots of money because like there was a time where he lost access to his account and lost internet access and couldn't uh, get on and his house collapsed and he lost all all the money that we had invested in this uh in this casino and so that's why we had to stop and that was about the time that we ended up getting rid of the game to selling our accounts off uh i think i sold my overall account for four hundred dollars at the time which looking back i wish i'd sold it for more um but yeah it was just because of the stuff that i had on there with gold and real estate and uh, the character being so uh highly leveled that's super interesting um super into ultima online (laughs) well and your other one too is uh star wars galaxies right yeah 
I was really proud that I got into the beta access for Star Wars Galaxies. Like it was super duper hard to get into uh, back before the game came out. And I was an admin on the Star Wars Galaxies Stratix forums. And that was how I got into the, the beta was through the uh, commute being one of the community managers there that it was uh, because we were able to get in and write about it and uh, talk about it and everything like in, and experience it before it came out. It was it was awesome. I was super proud of being able to do that. Sweet. That's really cool. Well, and then, okay, so one of yours is not like the others. I right. See. One of mine, like, the only other one that I've been super proud of is, like, like thinking about, like, regular, normal, like, achievement type stuff in games was the first game I ever remember 100%ing was Ocarina of Time. And it was, I was stuck missing a single item in that game for so long. Like, I 99%ed this game within the first two weeks of it coming out. Like, like before I uh, went back to school, I remember because I went to school 14 days after uh, Christmas. And so I had 99% of this game, but there was one mask I couldn't get. And it was from a traveling salesman on who wandered around the plains. And uh, it was kind of random as to when you would come across them. And I could never find this person. And so I would occasionally just load up the game and like uh, run around on Epona and try to find the uh, the vendor who would just sell me this and so never had any luck getting it i was really really disappointed so i finally got uh, just tired of it and stopped one time i was 16 i was talking to my girlfriend on the phone and decided to pop it into the n64 and just run around and she was my good luck charm uh because i was able to uh get that and 100 ocarina of time uh and she thought that i was crazy because i was i was one of those people on youtube who was like screaming and super excited because i'd waited years to get that one friggin mask and uh, i was so excited that was the very first hundred percent that i'd ever gotten in a game and i remember angela was like what are you doing man what whoa what happened but it was it was that one i'm proud of because i finally got that friggin mask that's cool no that's really cool um it's kind of it's interesting looking at yours versus mine because almost all of yours except for like the uh the ocarina of time one but all of yours are so driven by like social components in one way or another right so like you had rating which is like a whole social activity you had like being the first on your server and then you had the whole thing with ultima online where like people knew you um and then being an admin for beta for star wars like all of those are very socially driven which doesn't surprise me just knowing you none of mine are socially driven at all in the least Mm -mm. Yeah, so mine are, it's not even like 100%ing anything, but it's uh, it's like series that I've played through all of or most of, and I like, and I've like consistently engaged with them, and I know them really well, and continue to have fun either thinking about them or playing them or both. Um, that's kind of where I landed, because all of the like actual achievements and trophies, I mean, we can talk about that in a second, but those never really hooked me the way that i know they do some people right yeah so i mean i guess my number one like the biggest thing for me is playing through and beating every mainline final fantasy game like right that was huge right and i know i've talked about that in the past but i did that is probably about a decade ago at this point maybe not quite that long ago but we're getting there 2011 maybe something like that maybe yeah um i don't think we're quite to a decade but yeah somewhere somewhere around there so we'll we're getting there soon um 
And just like having done that and gotten the whole context and like playing all the games and enjoying them all to one extent or another for kind of what they offer, I I just I love the Final Fantasy series, but also I love that I have all of that context around it so I can have a conversation with anybody about Final Fantasy, like kind of regardless of which game they've played, how they've interacted with it, because I can jump into like any frame of mind because I've played all of it. Like I, I know what people are talking about and right. I like that a lot. Um, and you know, it wasn't ever something that I wanted to do just to say I did it. It was really like just internally motivated. Like I wanted that context for myself. So I did it. Um, so that's, that's probably my biggest one. And yeah, that's, that's why a big one up. too. Yeah. Not a lot of people have played every mainline Final Fantasy game. And I mean, that's one that I've not played through all of them. Like I've never been able to finish uh, one, two or three. Like I've gotten very far in them, seen endings and, and boss fights. But I've never been able to get all the way through them. And it's just like anyone who can do all of that is has my respect like austin with all the dragon quest games and powering through all of them like you with all the final fantasy games is like that is a huge commitment to being able to finish them all especially doing them in order yeah it was super fun and i still want to go back and do it again at some point i just don't know when i got to figure out when that fits into my schedule um scheduling is always the real challenge as an adult um but beyond that um the other ones are kind of along the same lines like i played every zelda game and I've beaten most of them. I haven't beaten all of them, but I also don't <laughs> feel this compulsion to go back and beat the ones that I haven't because I've kind of gotten what I wanted out of each one of them, um, regardless right. of whether I finished them or not. And I I like the Zelda series. Like, I don't want to go back and replay it the way I do with Final Fantasy because some of them just, I don't enjoy the gameplay as much or they haven't aged as well. Right. Um, and, and that's totally fine. But just having like played all the Zelda games, I also feel good about that. And then I've beaten every mainline mario platformer so like not every mario spinoff game because there's a million of those but that's not what i care about i'm like the core mario platformers i've beaten all of those and i just i love mario like mario is probably the or mario platformers specifically is probably my most consistent like touchstone with gaming for my entire life because yeah the my earliest memories of playing video games were playing the original like super mario brothers on nes when i was probably like five or six um and ever since then it's just every mario platformer that's come out i've gotten it like right around the time it came out and i played it and i beat it and i still do that and i still love it so that i feel really good about that like as a core part of just my gaming life in general and it's interesting that you say that because there are so many of my shames that I didn't play, that I've not played through like the the Wii U games or actually even beaten uh, Galaxy or Sunshine. And so I'm actually looking to rectify that soon, like either if they do a remake on uh, Switch for some of them and actually GameStop right now is running like buy one, get one half off of uh, last generation games. And I think some of those Mario 3D World and 3D lands are included in that. So I'm going to look and see if I can get fairly cheap used ones uh, to be able to play through soon. Cool. Yeah. That, no, that's awesome. I'd love to talk more about those as you play through them because, like I yeah, said, especially I've liked as them much all. as you love them. That's that's huge. Yeah, and some of them, and this is probably for Zelda also. It's like some of them were great at the time, but I wouldn't want to replay them now because they just don't hold up to modern day standards. Right. Um, whereas I actually think Final Fantasy series has aged a lot better because it's not action based, and that goes right. so far because. 
controls can be kind of fixed, you know, as they remaster and remake the Final Fantasy games, just to mm-hmm. bring it up to like modern day what we expect. But the core gameplay is fine. You just adjust the controls a little bit. Whereas like so much of the core gameplay of an action game is dependent on controls so by retweaking the controls as you bring those games back and put them on new platforms you would be fundamentally changing the game in a way that you just can't do yeah and that's a that's a big thing with some of the zelda games like it's just it's hard to play some of the older ones uh just because of that specifically and like although it's weird like i can forgive some things like zelda has always been so precise when you're playing it it's what it feels like it's very solid but going back it's kind of hard to play some of them just based on uh, the way that they've made it better and like Final Fantasy Adventure is the uh, first. Uh, it's uh, on the Game Boy, and it's Adventure of Mana, uh, Adventures of Mana, and was second in Setsu One, and it is uh, really easy for me to go back to for some reason. It's still not a great experience action wise, but for some reason that one doesn't bug me like the uh, old Zelda does. Like playing the original Link's Awakening on Game Boy feels dated. That one, even though it feels dated, it feels like oh, I can deal with this. Where Zelda doesn't, and I don't know why that is. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah I I'm, can't figure it out. It's like, oh, this holds up well enough, and <laughs> Zelda's like, oh, I'm going to play the remake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then the last one I threw in here was, I put playing through almost all of the Assassin's Creed mainline games, <laughs> but that's because I wrote these this part of these notes before last week. Uh, so I actually beat that since I wrote these notes. So I've beaten yep. the entire uh, mainline Assassin's Creed games. And right. Uh, that was fantastic. I talked about it a bunch last week, uh, having finished Rogue finally. But right. again, it's, you know, I just find myself, the the theme here for me is really like, I like being a completionist at like a series level for series that I really enjoy. And right. it's not like I want to 100% everything. I'm not that type of completionist. I don't need to do every single thing in every single game to feel like I've done it. Um occasionally i do just for fun or because the mood catches me or i'm like oh that achievement looks interesting but it's never like my driving force and it's never something that it it just doesn't like keep me engaged like that's not enough for me but having like completed the game like saw the storyline or experienced the whole game start to finish um that's enough for me to kind of like mentally check it off my internal list so that i feel good about it because like that's what matters is like what you feel about your gaming. It doesn't really matter what it says on Xbox Live or PSN for like which trophies you have or whatever. Yeah, and that's one of the problems I have with trophies is that some of them seem completely arbitrary to me. Like some of them are completely arbitrary. It's like, why would I bother doing this? Like this doesn't even, it's like making it hard mode, but it's not even a fun hard mode. It's just grinding towards something where I have a hard time with some achievements like that. Uh, But then there's stuff like Spider-Man on PS4 where the achievements are attainable. And I feel like, oh, I would like to get a platinum on this because I love this game. But for most games, it's like I like getting achievements, but it's rare that I will want to push forward because I don't get a feeling of of pride from having those uh, like some people do. Like I don't I don't I don't feel any need to have that validate my uh, my cred. You know, that's not street cred for me. Yeah, I mean, Spider-Man is a good example because that's one of the ones that I have a platinum for, too. And I didn't explicitly go for it. It was just that like. I beat the game playing the way that I wanted to play and kind of doing whatever side activities I felt like. And when the game was 
beat, like the main storyline was beaten, I still wanted to just swing around and have fun. So I looked at the achievements then, like I didn't look at the achievements before that point. And I realized that I was almost all the way to platinum. And it kind of gave me this incentive to be like, well, I'm looking for an excuse to spend more time in this world. Here's something to kind of pick away at. So let's just try it. Um, yeah. And that's why I did it. And that's usually how I'll engage with achievements is I don't care for the most part. And sometimes I'll look at them when I start a game or near the beginning. But most of the time, I won't even like look until near the end of a game. Um, and then it's more of... Is there anything that this is pushing me to do that's like interesting or a new playstyle I haven't tried out? Or like, you know, is there something that makes me think about the game differently in an interesting way that I would get by trying to get these achievements? Because that'll okay, get I can me see to, that. That'll get me to do it, right? Like that'll push me into, oh, I barely use that mechanic. Let me try that and just see what it has to offer. Um, or the other thing is if I beat a game and like I'm not really going for achievements, but I beat the game and then I look at them and I realize I'm most of the way there. Sometimes it's kind of like, yeah, I'm having fun in this world. Like this will keep me here for a little bit longer and I'll yeah. take that excuse. Lego games will do that where it's like, oh, I beat the game, but it's like I still want to I still want to play this. And I realize, oh, there's stuff to unlock where it's not even so much achievements, but it's unlockables as well, where it's not even so much a pride or an achie like actual achievement kind of thing. It's just like, oh, I want to continue playing this. And then when I see the complete roster, I'm like, oh, look at all I did. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is cool. I mean, I I like them as those like mini goals or as inspiration like when achievements right. are set up that way they they work for me and one of the things that i thought was really interesting was like going back and playing hitman the way that i've been playing it lately as kind of this evergreen game that i'm like dipping back into between other games i'm yep. finding that the way they do like their challenges and their feats and their discoveries they give me like the pride and the inspiration that is that I, I wish more achievements would give people because I'm doing those because it's fun and it makes me think and it gives me new ways to engage with the game. And those aren't directly tied to any like trophies or achievements in the game. Um, you know, if you do a bunch of them, you'll probably end up getting most of the trophies, but it's not a one-to-one -one thing. It's almost like all of these mini objectives that just give you different ways to interact with the systems and to just like look at things from a different perspective. And I love that as an in-game mechanic for Hitman, but I almost wish that more developers would take that thinking and apply it to their like system level trophies and achievements because I think that would be so much more fun. And some of the like the reason I find more pride in doing things that that I set for myself and goals and and moving through a game is because so many of the actual achievements are they they seem just tacked on like oh we need some trophies so uh here's some stuff that we can do like i was looking through steam achievements the other day for some stuff and i'm like this is basically just beating the game like most of these are just like story beats for some games and i'm like i don't even care enough to like even try for these others because they're just so halfway done and i feel that like doing stuff myself like oh can i get on top of that building and stand on it that i'm more proud of like oh look at this screenshot i got that's more <laughs> of a pride than getting the actual like i did x y and z to uh, to get this gold trophy on psn 
Well, and some of them are more frustrating than anything else. Like, it'll almost actively push you away from it if you're trying to engage with that system. Um, The one that I noticed the other day was I was looking back, like, thinking about this episode, I was looking back through my Assassin's Creed play history, and I was kind of glancing at some of the trophies in the different games that I've picked up just by playing without even trying, like I was just talking about. And I realized that um, a lot of the ones I don't have in Assassin's Creed Unity are actually co-op and you have to play online to do that. So right now, like if I were to decide, oh, I'm going to go try to like 100% Assassin's Creed games uh, from a trophy perspective, those would be extremely annoying to try to find an active group of people that are playing a game that's like seven years old at this point online in co-op mode. Like you could probably do it if you worked really hard, but that doesn't sound like fun. That sounds like a slog. And I see so many people talking about that as well, like in terms of what they're having fun with with a game. And it's like, but I'm a single player player, but it's forcing me to do multiplayer. And I see that a lot in online games where it's like, well, I I get pride out of these achievements. Like I feel good getting them, but I have to PvP to get them. And that ruins the game for me. And I totally understand that. Like I'll do it if it's something that I really care about. But for the most part, I'm just like, yeah, I just going to that that's not where i like i said that's not where i get my validation and real pride from it's for me like i said it's a lot more social stuff and self self, not self-attained but um intrinsic motivation than uh, extrinsic oh yeah for sure and i think that's the core of it right like uh anything that's intrinsically motivated is always going to be stronger and more powerful than an extrinsic like Mm. motivation um yeah but okay so we're proud of stuff. I wanted to bring that up just because last time it was such like, a, oh, what do we feel bad about? So we needed the counterpoint in yeah. there. Um, if you guys want to support the Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash geek to geek cast. And you're running some stuff there right now, right? Yeah, right now, uh, if you're listening to this on time, you can go to patreon.com slash geek to geek cast and you will get a poll uh, for what we talk about. We are uh, we've taken ideas from people on uh, post and we're going to be doing this monthly where you guys can tell us what you want us to talk about and give episode suggestions. So we have a poll up right now for patrons. Uh, we're going to be going through it until uh, I think I said the 14th of July and then tentatively the episode on July 22nd uh, will be that particular episode and keep on going that way uh, for when we run out of ideas for the month, that kind of thing, work it into our schedule. So uh, patrons, we're wanting to get a little bit more for uh, patrons specifically uh, to, to get more involved in the show. So uh, go over to patreon.com slash geek to geekcast and check it out. Yeah, for sure. Um, Don't forget, we're part of a network. You guys can get other podcasts. You can get streamers. We have the Geekery blog, all that and more at geek2geekmedia.com or geek2geekmedia.com slash subscribe. And it comes right to you in your inbox, which is fantastic. Um, And with that, it's time for Weekly Geekery, where we share what we've been geeking out about this week. What have you been up to? Most of what I've done is watch Avatar The Last Airbender. All right. We finished it last night. Oh, cool. Did you like it? It is excellent. Uh, It is one of the best shows I might have ever seen. Like it is fantastically put together. And uh, Jennifer, when when we finished it, we had uh, we sat there for a second. We talk while we're watching TV. That's one of the things that we do together is uh, engage with television together. And we talk a lot about the stuff that 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 it's dealing with the uh, the way that it presents ideas. And we're really impressed that it's a kids show that can do all of this. And Jennifer just turned around 
around to me when the credits rolled and was like, and said, and I quote, that was one of the most powerful and well-crafted shows I've ever seen. And it's, that means a lot coming from her. Like yeah. we were, we were trained in, uh, I mean, that's what we went to school for was film and TV studies. That was what we have our master's degrees in. And so it was like, there is a lot in Avatar The Last Airbender that I would not have expected in a kid's show that there is, it, it brings up ideas of diversity uh, so often, but just even more than that on, on being a good person, how you interact with society, uh, how you deal with your girlfriend becoming the moon. It's just really just just dealing with past mistakes. I don't know. It's hard to really put all of it into just, you know, just a small little uh, synopsis. But in terms of what you watch, depending on what you watch TV for, if you're looking for a show that has a lot of nuance to it and how it presents ideas, it's strangely Avatar The Last Airbender is one of the better ones I've ever seen. And I did not expect that going in. And we're really excited to go into Korra as well. The Legend of Korra is the follow-up uh, sequel show to it. And it is actually streaming on CBS All Access, which we still have because of uh, Picard. So we're going to start watching it tonight. And what I've, uh, your brother actually told me that uh, it is a more mature show, that it is... They aged this one up for the kids who had watched Avatar and dealing with the things that they're dealing with now. And so I'm really interested to see this four-year run on uh, because the Avatar was initially aimed at 6 to 11-year-olds. And so that is actually the same demo that Frozen was aimed at initially like that particular kids demographic is great for you know kids entertainment but frozen 2 dealt with a lot more uh nuanced and subtle topics than the first one did got into a little more complex ideas and psychology and uh between right and wrong and the gray areas and what you do and just what it you know growing up and so it aged up with those kids as well and i think that uh, if Korra is anywhere near as well done as like Frozen 2, which I actually think I like it better than the first one. Um, it's going to be an incredible show because we see a lot in Avatar that uh, if I were still in academics and writing about pop culture, there's a lot that I could say about Avatar over the course, and I will absolutely watch it again. Cool. It's That's so really good. good. So I want like, I need your report on Legend of Korra now because um, I went back and I looked and I had watched the first three episodes and I liked them, but I okay. didn't find a good way to watch them streaming anywhere without picking up a service that I didn't already have. Um, right. So if you watch all of the first season and it still seems like something I would like, I might just go like buy it on Amazon where I can just stream it on Amazon Prime Video. Mm, I got that. that. And that's how I stream it, actually. I have CBS All Access through Amazon. And so we're paying 10 bucks for it for that uh, that channel, which is cheaper than actually buying the Blu-rays or the individual seasons. So I'm still doing it through Amazon. Oh, um, okay, cool. So it's uh, that's how we watch it, uh, watch stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's 
we watched the very like first three minutes of the show last night because I wanted to see the animation style because I knew they had done it in HD where Avatar was finished in like 2001 and uh, they well in 2005 excuse me so it was definitely still an SD and so they have it now with full screen widescreen uh, animation so I wanted to see what they were doing and I think I think I'm gonna like it because even in just that first bit I can see them handling things that as they, that they can transition into Korra with and based on some of the things I've heard uh it handles some pretty sensitive subjects so I'm I'm really interested in this one that's cool that the well okay I'm interested in it too I'm on the same page and I want to hear more um right I have a tangent just because this is why I laughed while you were talking you've mentioned the year that the TV show wrapped up and there's this thing that happened in the late nineties and early two thousands with video. And a lot of people don't realize this. Um, but I'm, I've been doing video production and like film production professionally. Right. Um, right. And that was one of the core times when I was doing it. Um, and what happened was there was a period up until late nineties where everything was still like on tape in one kind or another or on film. And, right even though it would be broadcast over like SD signals, the master that you were actually working off of and editing to, and that you had a digital like, or not a digital, that you had an archived copy of was a lot better than that because you were working with like good raw files. Then they came out with like digital cameras that for video and the sensors on them were not big, but they were like enough quality that you could broadcast at basically the same quality. Um, and so there's this period from the late 90s into like the first five years of the 2000s where the SD footage was actually captured at a much lower rate than the stuff before or after it. So huh. we have a lot of TV shows, especially where you will never be able to remaster it and see it better than you can right now because it was just recorded that way when it was initially recorded. Um, whereas you can go back farther and you can get really good quality video or film and you can remaster that into HD or 4K or even more than that. Um, and then the stuff that's coming out now is captured on all digital for the most part. And those are really, really high end ones where it's already capturing it in 4K or 8K or something like that. So it looks great. But there's a weird middle ground in there in those early 2000s where it's like, yep, that's that's what those are going to look like for all time, no matter what. Huh. That's really interesting because I've looked at the Blu-ray set of Avatar and Korra together uh, to see what that would look like when we when we rewatch this because I've really gotten recently into animation. Like I've found that the more I watch like television right now with everything that's going on, I'm having a hard time getting into uh, live action drama, and I. Just I don't know why, but whenever I'm watching something animated, I'm really engaged in the actual animation itself. And so I was really excited to think about what they were remastering Avatar into uh, on those Blu-ray releases because of it doesn't look bad by any means when you're, you know, you're streaming it. But I figured that with the better colors, the better uh, resolutions that they could do on a Blu-ray remaster would look a lot better. But that so may not be the case with this particular show. 
it might because it was animated. So it depends on how they did the raw files for it. Right. Um, but for most of the actual live action TV of that time period, it just is what it is. And if you hmm. guys want to see some of the, the easiest examples of this, go and look at some Star Trek. Just look at Star Trek through the ages from like way back when to right now. And you'll see this period right around Voyager, basically, where things look kind of rough and they're always going to look rough. And that's just the way it is. Hmm. That's yeah. that's interesting. I had no idea about that because I don't understand the actual recording to broadcast transit, like not transition, but process through there. Like that's something I have never been exposed to, like where it goes from raw to uh, production and broadcast. Yep. Yeah. Just that production pipeline. Sorry. Anyway, tangent. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad to know that. I like that. Um, but other than that, I beat Link's Awakening uh last i talked about it last week how it felt kind of like uh, baby's first zelda and it continued to feel that way i'm glad i played it i like the game uh i totally understand why it was my favorite zelda growing up but it absolutely feels like a zelda game with training wheels um it guides you every step of the way tells you where to go uh after each dungeon tells you what direction to go um it is very, very fun. I played all the way through it, but I didn't go through any of the optional content because I honestly just didn't care enough. And because I played it so much as a kid that with it being almost scene for scene, I was like, yep, I know what I'm getting into. So I just moved forward and never like got the more powerful suits or uh, anything like that or or a sword or anything. I never even upgraded anything but hearts. I was like, I'm just going to go all the way through this. And uh, But I really did enjoy it, but it is totally uh, Zelda on training wheels yeah that makes sense but hey you finished it that's good i did um it was it's fun i don't finish a whole lot of games so i finished that i saw the credits um i bought jump force on steam when it was on sale uh which is a fighting game and it plays more like smash bros than anything uh i say that in a i don't play fighting games way because it's you get a particular set of moves and combos that every character uses and they do something different. So that's not the kind of fighting game that I'm used to, but it's a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it so far and I've been able to play as a Dragon Quest character through one of the mangas I'm reading, uh, Dai, uh, from Dino Daiboken, and it is uh, really, uh, really fun to be able to do that. Um, I've played a little bit of Golf Story trying to get through it. Played a little bit of Golf Story. Um, I can play that for... I love love this game but i can only play it for like short segments like it, i don't know what it is about it that makes it where i can play it i have a really good time and then it's like okay i'm done with this for a few minutes or a couple of days and then i'll come back to it later and be like oh i need to play this again that kind of thing uh, for some reason that's that kind of game for me and then uh i've watched jennifer play the spongebob squarepants battle for bikini bottom rehydrated <laughs> uh remaster that they did and this was a ps2 game right did you ever play the original one because i did not no i have no idea i've seen people talking about this game and i have no context for it at all it is a 3d platformer that is like mario 64 banjo kazooie uh ukulele that kind of thing where you're going around you have worlds you have different objectives within that world to get whatever the thing that you're chasing uh whether it's moons in mario odyssey stars in 64 whatever you're doing uh pages and ukulele you're collecting your thing to open up more areas uh in different worlds like it is very much a 3d platformer uh style uh, like traditional style 
it was made for the PS2 back during the heyday of SpongeBob, and so it was targeted at kids. And it's hard, man. Like, this game, I don't understand how kids were able to do this. Like, it's hard for me, and I'm pretty good at platformers. Like, Jennifer would be like, oh, can you beat this? And use I'm like, like, yeah. Doop, 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 doop. Okay, beat. Here you go. This one, it's like, nah, I can't do this either. We're just skipping this part. Like, this sucks. <laughs> it's like, it is way harder than I thought it was going to be for a SpongeBob game. I am impressed. Like, uh, and she is keeping on going, which I'm really proud of, because there's a lot of times where she gets frustrated and just stops when a game, like you did with uh, Luigi's Mansion 3, where it becomes yeah. unfun. You're not going to put the time into it uh, because it becomes unfun, but there's enough to do in this one where she can just move past that kind of thing. And uh, usually she'll stop but uh, she's enjoying this one enough to keep going, which says a lot about it as a game. Like, it is a good platformer. Like, I did not think a SpongeBob game was going to be really, really good, especially one that launched at $30 as a remake of a PS2 game. But it's actually really good. It's uh, it's worth picking up. Like, it's worth picking up for 30 bucks, and uh, which is something I know you, you and I have talked about, that subjective value that $30 is a weird place in the, uh, in the gaming uh, pricing point. But this one... Worth thirty dollars if if you like three D platformers. Yeah, I feel mixed about them unless they're Mario. So probably not for me. Yep, I, I know that's the way I am. It's like three D platformer that's Mario. Of course, I'm gonna get it. Another one. It's like eh, I don't know. But yeah. this one, yeah, absolutely, I can recommend this one. It's been a lot of fun for me to play and more for me to watch her because she adores SpongeBob. Uh, so it's it's been good. I like it. Cool. Oh, that's good. Um, I watched Hamilton multiple times this week because it just came out on streaming. And yep. Hamilton is still amazing and fantastic. And I don't have a whole lot else to add besides the fact that I'm glad that I can now watch the actual like performance of it instead of just listening to it. Um, I've listened to that soundtrack so many times. So oh, yeah. this is just a new element. And like I said, I've l- watched it a few times already this week it's probably just going to end up on part of the rotation where it's like, "Uh, I don't know what to watch tonight. My wife and I want to watch something. Let's just watch Hamilton again because it's so good. Yeah. It's uh, that's kind of how I am with the soundtrack. It's like I drove across the river this morning to uh, go to Jennifer's new office. And I was like, I don't know what to listen to today. Hamilton it is. And so I listened to the first act of Hamilton going there and back. So it was uh, like, yep, that's, that's just one of my defaults. And the movie hasn't gotten that yet uh, because of a, it's on Disney plus, which we don't keep it on most of the time. It, we have to go specifically to that one to watch something, but also because the second half is so emotionally draining that I'm like, oh, I can't sit through that again. Mm, not right now. But man, it made me cry. Yeah, it's it's really good. So uh, if you guys have heard us talking about it now for like two or three years and you're like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to just listen to the music. Now's the time to go check it out. You can actually see the performance and it it all congeals in a better way. Like it gels together, oh, you yeah. know, Um it's really cool. So anyway, Hamilton's still fantastic. And I was impressed by this recording of it because they recorded it over multiple shows uh, and then they stayed late one night to be able to record the close-ups and stuff. So it's a, a combination of different uh, performances of it. And I really like this recording because it is at a different pace than the soundtrack is, the one that's produced. As a theater guy, I'm able to see how these are live performances. And I'm like, the choices that they're making immediately on stage 
stage is different than what they're being directed to when they're in the studio. So I'm like, oh, that's why they're, oh, where I can hear the difference and watch it. I'm like, ah, oh, see why you did that there, but did this in the studio. Like, it's really cool. And I really like the recording that they did for the uh, movie version. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, this has made me think about the future of live theater. And I think that if theater wants to future proof itself and get more people interested in it and draw people, more people to a live theater production, they should do more of these. Like they should do recordings that are very professional quality of like Broadway shows or off Broadway shows. Um, But basically like live theater productions that are produced at this quality and you know you take multiple nights of multiple shows and you get them all in camera and then you pick the best ones in the edit and you put it together and you put it out on streaming somewhere people can experience it because i think that this being available to everybody is going to do so much more for like the long-term interest in hamilton as like a work of art and as like a theater piece than anything that's come before it because suddenly it's accessible and that's one of the hardest things about like broadway and musicals and theater is that like tickets are expensive and also most of us don't live by broadway you know it's just it's the way that it is um so yeah i think this is a really smart thing to do i would love to see more musicals and more like stage theater plays and stuff come to this And part of it for me is I want that. And there are multiple reasons to do this because Hamilton is now uh, eligible for an Emmy because it was put on a television streaming service. It's eligible for an Emmy from uh, the, I think it's called like TV musical and variety or something like that is what the category it falls into. So there's a chance you could win an Emmy. It's not eligible for an Oscar because it's a pre-recorded theater production. And so it's not eligible for an Academy Award, but uh, it opens up more marketing for them, more uh, exposure for uh, recordings and television, televised, things like that. And I would pay to see Broadway and off-Broadway productions of shows that I want to see that I'll never have a chance to see uh like right now i would watch an avenue q one i would watch an in the heights one i would absolutely watch uh next to normal if i was able to you give me uh waitress and just so many of these that i can't see because i'm nowhere near broadway or even a, a major like touring area uh for theater is like i would give them money to watch a recording of that and it's maybe this is because with the pandemic pandemic with COVID-19 limiting how we may be able to gather in the future and uh, with theater specifically being a super spreader event uh, because of uh, speaking more loudly and projecting actually projects the droplets and uh, the virus out further. um, This is a really good way to future proof theater, like you said, and I'm 100% behind it. Let me pay you to watch that stuff that I can't give you money for. Oh, yeah, me too. And I mean, you know, I am by a place where all the major like tours come through Minneapolis, right? And I'm in the Twin Cities area. So like, but even that it's it's you got to the scheduling scheduling is always hard as an adult. Plus, you have to have money for it. Like tickets are not cheap for live theater. And you I don't know, it's it's just it's a whole thing, right? Like you have to make a whole night of it. And it becomes a whole event. And you have to save up for it. And it's like, if they did more to bring theater to more people through streaming services, um, 
I think it would pay off for like everybody. I think it's win-win all the way around. So I hope to see more of that in the future. And um, for you, so yes. it doubles the price because you have two children to take with you. And even for me, it's just uh, Jennifer and myself where we only had to pay two exorbitant priced uh, tickets. Like you have to pay four exorbitantly priced tickets. Yeah, or leave them home and get a babysitter, which is different but still effective true um yeah so hamilton's still fantastic um besides that the other main thing i did this week was i beat assassin's creed 3 so i may be kind of on a replay through assassin's creed um the assassin's creed 3 specifically i picked it because it was like on theme for the holiday because it was just the fourth of july <laughs> and right. th- that's literally the only reason i picked it was because i was like ah, let's see the revolutionary <laughs> war one like I, I have no other reason and i played them all so i don't have to play them in order you know this time right. um this is probably the worst paced mainline assassin's creed game in the entire series there are 12 sequences, which is pretty normal, somewhere around 12. And that's kind of like the chapters of the game. But in Assassin's Creed, they're always called sequences. Um, okay. And you don't fully unlock your core abilities in Assassin's Creed 3 until sequence like 6 or 7, which is at least 50%, if not more, through the game. Um, and that's brutal. Like, it was, as somebody who actually understands the kit that you normally have to work with, I hated it. Like, I hated how <laughs> slow that ramp up was. Um, the story was fine that was going on during it, but it was just that was, you know, frustrating. Um, but once you get your whole kit, the underlying systems are fine, you know, even though this one is. I don't even know how old this is at this point, but, you know, this is a ways back in the series. Um, this story was very on brand for 4th of July, but I think what I ended up with was that I like the other games around this one better. This has close ties to Black Flag, which is Assassin's Creed 4, and also to uh, Assassin's Creed Rogue, which is the one that I beat and talked about last week. Those are both better-paced games with better-told stories, and the systems in those games, I think, are better, too, because they've had more time to refine it. So there's nothing, like, wrong with Assassin's Creed 3 outside of some wonky pacing, um, but I do like a lot of the other games in the series more than this one. But again, if you want Revolutionary War, 4th of July, th- this is the one to go with. Now, I'm confused on which Assassin's Creed game is which. And with this one being the Revolutionary War, I'm trying to remember, are you a Native American in this one? Or is that a different Assassin's Creed game that I'm thinking of? No, you are. But also, the first part of the game, you play as a completely different character, um, okay. which is his father. So it's it's a native american um but also like uh brit so your your heritage is the father is like um someone from britain who is basically on the side of the british and then the mother is native american um okay. and so the main character was raised like in native american culture essentially so yeah that's the one that you're thinking okay. of Okay, that's what I wanted to make sure because I didn't know if there was another one where you were a like a Revolutionary War soldier, like either American or British soldier, as opposed to the one that I'm thinking of where you're a Native American. I got you. Well, and there's some weirdness in here with how it ties into the other games around it because Assassin's Creed 4, which happened after this, because, right, this is three, that's four. <laughs> um, four is Black Flag, and you play as the main character in three, his grandfather. Um, and so it goes back in time instead of forward. And then Rogue is like an ancillary story that sits right between those two stories. So it's a prequel to three, but it kind of happens during or slightly after four. It's it's weird how they're all tied together. But like I said, out of those three that are really tied closely together, I think I like Black Flag and Rogue better. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about Assassin's Creed 3 was I, I'm... 
surprised at how fast I can play through these games, not playing them like I normally do. So, uh, and I know I told you this kind of via text, but normally I'm playing an Assassin's Creed game. I see something interesting and I go do it, right? I get like every one of the sync points because it's fun for me to climb stuff. And I want to, you know, internally, I like that completionism of I want to unveil the whole map by going to all the high places and syncing up to them. And I see a new activity that I've never done before. Oh, let's go experiment with that. Is it fun? Is it worth doing more of this? Um, Which activities do I decide to 100%? Or do I want to upgrade my gear all the way? Probably, because I like upgrading my gear. Um, Or in the ones with ships, like, do you want to upgrade your ship all the way? It's like, yeah, that sounds fun. But when I'm replaying them for this, I'm really just playing them for the story because I'm getting myself kind of hyped for Valhalla. And just enough to revisit these. So I'm going crit path in a way that I never have with Assassin's Creed games before. So instead of being like a 40-ish hour game, this was like an 8 to 12 hour game. Like it was just the the main story just all the way through, beginning to end. And it was really interesting to play an Assassin's Creed game that way. It sounds so much more appealing to me. Because I do not like super long action games. Like... Action-adventure games are really fun for me to play, but they are absolutely a short-burst kind of game. Like Tomb Raider, things like that. Like you, Something you can beat in 15 hours or under, I'm all about for action games. And so I don't get into like Assassin's Creed games because I know that they are these huge, sprawling, like 50, 60, 80-hour games that people invest lots of time in. But to hear that you went through just the main story within like 8 to 12 hours is really really more interesting to me and makes me want to like boot back up the very first Assassin's Creed on my computer that I'd had on like Uplay because it's that's much more doable for me much more in engaging in terms of this kind of gameplay yeah it was super fun are all of them like that that you could do that with do you think I don't know but if things keep going the way they're going I can tell you in a couple weeks do it (laughs) yeah I might. Uh, the other thing that was kind of funny was I I finished this one with basically just the starter gear because I didn't. I, I was like, you know, if I if I get held up because something's too hard, I'll just go upgrade the gear. I didn't have to. I used the starter stuff all the way through the end because I've played these games before and I know the systems well enough and I know how to break those systems well enough. So yeah, I finished the game without ever upgrading the gear at all, which was kind of funny. I did that in Zelda, so it makes me happy. It's like oh, I know how to play this game. Let's get to it. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's probably about it for this week. You guys can write to us with comments, suggestions, or feedback. Our email address is geek2geekcast at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at geek2geekcast. We also have great discussions on Slack, Discord, and Reddit. You can go to geek2geekmedia.com for invite links. And while you're there, make sure to check out all the other content on the network. We have blogs and video game reviews and so much more. I blog at agreenmushroom.com. You can find me at grnmushroom. That's green mushroom without the E's on Twitter. I'm also on the Disney Forever podcast where we watch and react to a different Disney movie every week. I'm on Twitter as at Professor Beach. That's Beach with two E's. And I also co-host the Dragon Quest FM podcast, a show about the Square Enix RPG series. We've been Void Beach with your geek to geek podcast. That'll do it for this week. See you next week, geeks. Rise up! When toxic culture has you down. When you're just looking to laugh and have fun. Kick back and enjoy watching a video game. Or just make some new friends. It's time to visit the geek to geek Media Network. A community of podcasters, streamers, and bloggers. 
well, more of a family than a community. All dedicated to geeking out about the things we love. Things like video games, Star Wars, comics, movies, K-pop, Disney Plus, Keanu Reeves, new, or whatever our community decides is the next best thing. That's right. We have a great online community on Slack and Discord where we chat about our weekly geekery with listeners and viewers. And each other. Yep, and each other in real time. And we can't wait for you to join us. So come check us out at geek2geekmedia.com and escape toxic fandom for something much more... Keanu? Yes, Keanu. 